Welcome to In Context. This is Michael Easley, your host. Hannah Seymour is behind the glass, our executive producer for the program. And we are blessed, encouraged, happy, joyful, a whole bunch of other words to have Robert J. Morgan on the podcast. Good morning, Robert. How are you, Dr. Easley? I'm excited to see you, Dr. Morgan. <laughs> well, it's always a joy to be with you. Uh, You're we the best. are great friends. I, I treasure that. Me too. Me too. And for those of you that don't know, Robert comes over and pitches occasionally at Stonebridge Bible Church and teaches for me when I need a break. And so we've had a great friendship the last few years. For those of you who don't know Robert Morgan, he was the pastor at Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville for over 40 years, a voluminous author of gold illuminations and gold medallion. Rob, I had to look. I, I don't know what gold illuminations is. I was thinking about the illuminated Bibles. Well, I don't know what it is either. I just got a lovely <laughs> certificate from them one day. <laughs> I love it. And He's written 35 books, <laughs> 5 million in copies, multiple languages. He's the only guy that David Jeremiah will let have the pulpit. He said goodbye to his wonderful wife, Katrina, 43 years. That's coming up on, what is it, two years next month? Is that yes, right? It's almost two years ago. Uh, I'm so sorry. It, it seems like yesterday. I can't imagine. He's got three daughters, 16 grandchildren. He's a busy guy, but he makes time for us and in context. So again, thanks for being here. We're going to jump right in. Robert's newest book. I do have to tell a sidebar joke. I was talking to our friend, uh, Dr. Uh, William E. Brown, Dr. Bill Brown at Cedarville. And I was telling him that you preach for me on occasion and that uh, you're, you come on the podcast when I invite you. And he said, we had a joke at Cedarville. And they said, have you heard about Robert Morgan's new book? <laughs> <laughs> he said, the man puts out more than anybody I know. So anyway, his newest book is called Great Is Thy Faithfulness. And it came out September 21st, and Thomas Nelson was smart enough to publish it. So let's jump in. You, you said there's over 100 times in the Bible where the word faithful or faithfulness is used to describe the Lord. And you picked out 52, one per week, I suppose, to help us understand. Give us the big picture of the book. Well, you know, the faithfulness of God is one of his attributes. It's like his omnipotence. It's like his omniscience. He knows everything. He can do anything. He is eternal. There's his eternality. And all of his attributes interconnect. And one of those is his faithfulness. And it is a virtue or a uh, consequence of his integrity, of his truthfulness, so that what God has said cannot be violated by himself or anything else. He is absolutely committed to keep every single syllable of every word, of every promise that he has ever made. His word cannot fail. His promises cannot falter. We will never latch onto a promise and find that it is not substantial. Great is his faithfulness, the Bible says. And by great, even that is an understatement. It is infinite. It is immutable. It is unshakable. He will always do as he has said. And that gives us tremendous confidence and peace. Now, the whole Bible, of course, is a testament to God's faithfulness. But the words in the English Bible, if you use a concordance, faithfulness and faithful relating to God occur around a hundred times. I went through the Bible and found 52 of them and exegeted 
those 52 verses in their context and wrote about them. It was a great comfort to me after my wife passed away to remember how faithful God is to us. That's one thing I've heard you say over casual conversations as well as your teaching, that when something happens, you go back to the Bible and look up that topic or that thing. For many of our friends who maybe some are beginning authors, they want to write, they've always thought they want to write. Give us a little bit of Robert Morgan's brain when something like this happens. You articulated Katrina's passing and you go, okay, I need to be reminded that God is faithful. So what what do you go through? Give us a little insight before we look at some of the book on how that process works for you in your study. Well, the key word, I think, Michael, is overflow when it comes to preaching or when it comes to writing. That is overflow. We don't go into the Bible and try to find sermons. We don't go into the scripture or into life and try to find something to write about or books. We see what God is speaking to us about, and we get filled up with it for our own sake. And then the overflow of that becomes the book or the sermon or the article or whatever it is. So I love the Bible tools we have. I love just the scripture itself. And if I'm anxious, I may look up the word anxiety or the word worry and go through and find out what it has to say. If I'm bereaved, I may go through and see how Jesus handled death. You know, we just have to go into the Bible to minister to ourselves, to encourage ourselves in the Lord. And then what I discover is so exciting to me that I have to share it with somebody. And it may be in in conversation. It may be at the end of a phone call when I say, let me leave you with the verse of Scripture that God has showed me, or it may be in a book or in a sermon. But I think the important thing for preachers and for writers to remember is that ministry is overflow. You know, the psalmist said, my cup floweth over. And that's a principle for ministry. So that's sort of the way that it happens with me. Now, you talk about, in in your text, you talk about how dramatically the world's changed in the past two years. I I think a lot of us who are, I would say a lot of my peer have pulled away from media. We're tired. We're worn out from the argument and the vitriolic discussion, social media. I think a lot of people are finally wising up and saying, I need to reel this back a bit. Unless, of course, that's your job. But give me some insight on your diagnostics of the things that have changed so dramatically. Well, we're talking about two areas. One is the culture and the other is the church, the um, kingdom of the world and, and the kingdom of Christ. And the world, you know, it's it's been analyzed by so many people most recently by a new book by Oz Guinness, how American democracy is following the course of the French Revolution instead of the American Revolution, how things are increasingly becoming secular and not just secular. Secular means an absence of anything divine, but of course, becoming, as we can see, very anti-theistic, anti-Christian, anti-God, to the extent that if you are a person of faith, you are viewed as an enemy, as someone who should be silenced or canceled or eliminated. So we're living in a culture like that. So, you know, that isn't a bad thing. That's pretty much a normal thing. This is the way all of human history has been for God's people. This world is not a good place for us. The Bible says we are children of God, and the whole world is under the dominion 
of the evil one. So the fact that we're in a hostile environment is nothing new to Christians. What is disturbing is the progressive Christianity and the erosion of strong expositional teaching that is in the church at every level, not just with the pulpit ministry, but in the small group ministries and the devotional books that we're reading and the children's curriculum that is coming out now. Across the board, there are capitulations one step at a time to the culture we're living in. So what I try to do in my books is to maintain the exegetical integrity of what I say. I want what I say to be very readable. I I don't write on a scholastic level. I don't write for the academy. I write for, for people to read and to read easily. But I want what I say and what I write, even devotions on individual verses, to reflect expositional integrity. So in the church, I'm worried that that is slipping away. You know, as you know, one of my things that I harp on is the loss of hymnody in our churches. Now, I like new music, modern music. We've got to have it. We should have it. But a lot of it is becoming repetitious and quickly disposable. Nobody remembers the lyrics. It comes and goes so quickly. And the classic hymns are no longer being sung, so no one knows the lyrics to that. Michael, when my wife was so sick about you know, a week before she passed away. I don't know if I told you this, but I was. she was confused and I was lifting her from her wheelchair into bed and she started quoting the words, my gracious master and my God assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. And she had sung Oh for a Thousand Tongues by Wesley all her life. So those words came to her when nothing else would. So, you know, what comforts me so much are scriptures and classic hymns. And the loss of both of those in our churches is eroding our American culture of of sound evangelicalism. There was a gentleman in seminary when I was many, many years ago, getting old now, but he was a Vietnam uh, in a prison camp. And he told stories. You had to pry it out of him, but he told stories about he could remember the hymns. And he was so saddened, he didn't remember more of the Bible, but he remembered the hymns. And afterwards, of course, getting released, he committed to memorize more scripture because he thought when you don't have any physical material, what you have in your head, in your heart. Well, let's go on to your book a little bit. You have a bunch of issues here, and they're hard to say, like, which one do we want to talk about? But you asked the question, why is America falling apart? I think you've answered that in, in part right now. Anything you want to add to that? I mean, what are, like, your two big concerns about the country? You mentioned democracy's changed. We are a republic, I remind you, not a democracy. Uh, <laughs> nothing to do with conservative and liberal. It's That's just true, we are yeah. a republic. But, but the point being, it, it's very different than when you and I were younger. Yeah, well, of course— All of the issues of Marxism and socialism, which is Marxism is inherently anti-theistic. So those trends are becoming more and more dominant. I think the legal challenges... Let me interrupt you. Why do you think they have gotten such traction, socialism and Marxism in particular? Well, the loss, I think, of, of a genuine faith system creates a void in which substitute faith systems crowd in and... It's like 
you know, I'll be brave enough to bring up a critical race theory. Any theory of racial justice that does not include the gospel is itself inherently racist. Without the void of the truth of the gospel and the redemption of Christ and the brotherhood and sisterhood that he brings to a community, then there is a void there. And so people go looking for substitutes, and the substitutes, like Jeremiah said, are empty cisterns that can hold no water. When we talk about God's promises, and this is timely in God's kindness, we just interviewed Ken Boa recently, and he's, I don't know if you've ever seen his little leatherette books, he has nine of them, and one of them is on God's promises, and I did not know that actually had been a study Bible at one point. But I pressed him pretty hard. I said, define a promise. And you did that in your opening comment. But remember those books? You and I yeah. were old enough to remember that used to be on coffee tables, uh-huh. the gilded books of promise. I never looked at one. And, and when I did, it was just like verses out of John. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And you've organized that some. So give us, pick two or three that, and I know it's hard to do, that are meaningful to you or ones that you really enjoyed digging in on some of the promises specifically. Yeah, well, let me define the promises a little bit more. Many of them are I will promises, like I will be with you. They are future tense promises that are spoken by God to us. But there is a sense in which many of the commands are promises. So when the Lord says, rejoice in the Lord always, that is a commandment, but it implies that he is going to give us the resources to do that. Many truths are basically promises. They may be stated as a fact, like the Lord your God is great, but there is a promise element to it. So when I'm looking for a promise, maybe I've gone through something very, very difficult, and I just pick up reading where I left off you know, in the morning. And if I keep reading and say, Lord, I need a word from you, then there is a promise there. For example, in the book of Hebrews, It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. Well, that technically is not a promise. It is a commandment. We are to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess because of this fact that the one who promised is faithful. But to me, that is basically a promise. And I picture it in my mind's eye. I see myself like a a guy in the lake who's fallen down on his skis, and I'm floundering and feel like I'm drowning. But here's the ski rope. And so I hold on to it unswervingly. And the power to get up isn't in me. It is in that outboard motor. But if I just hold on to that promise, then the power of that motor is going to pull me up eventually. It may take me a little while to get up on my feet. But pretty soon, I'm going to be back up because of that. And I visualize that. And I think I've got to hold on to this promise unswervingly because the one who promised is faithful. So to me, that is, that's the way the Bible works in real life. We have needs and God has messages here to meet those needs. And we find that his word is sufficient for us. Now, for many Christians, they pray and you and I have talked to a lot of people, unfortunately, who something didn't come through for them and they've walked away from God, a parent died, a child died, a divorce ensued, some trauma, and we don't minimize those things. But they say, you know, I prayed, and I clung to God's word, and he did not come through. 
and you and I know the theological challenge with that, but as a pastor, help us out when a person says, well, you know, he said he's going to heal my wife or my husband or, or Katrina, uh, and he, quote, didn't in this temporal context. So how yeah. do we align that promise temporally and versus, well, sure, it's all going to work out when I'm dead, but that doesn't help me right now sometimes. Of course, this is the most difficult challenge, I guess, even apologetically facing Christianity. How do we explain suffering or when God doesn't act the way that we think or expect that he would or should? And it's not, to me, it's a very personal issue. I mean, I've got a very heavy burden that I've been praying about for a long time. And I pray earnestly. I prayed rigorously. And I have not seen the Lord work. And I've got a series of, of other issues that I've prayed about. Some of them I've been praying about 10, 15, 20 years, and I haven't seen the Lord work in them yet. So two things help me a great deal. One is Luke chapter 18, verse 1, we ought always to pray and not give up. So I just say, well, Lord, I'm just going to keep praying. I know that you operate in your timing. Your timing is not my timing. You arrange circumstances in ways that providentially have to unfold as you have ordained them. This may be an answer to prayer that may not occur until after I'm gone, or it may seem like everything has gone wrong, but I'm just going to keep praying. So let, I, let, me, let me inject here. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, Robert, we're praying for what we think is good and as you wrote in your book on Romans eight twenty eight, there's another level here we don't understand. And part of it is, am I praying in line with God's will? You know, God willing. Mm -hmm. And of course, I want this situation, you know, you and I both have some long-term issues. We, we beg God to, and yeah. at some points, I just want to say, Lord, do I keep praying for something that seems impossible to cling to as you're arguing a promise? Or do I at some point go, I don't know your plan. I submit to it. God willing, I wish this would happen, but give me the grace to accept what doesn't happen the way I want it to. Yes. Well, that's the second thing that I want to say. Sorry, I jumped ahead. No, no, no. You were <laughs> anticipating. I think we're thinking exactly along the same lines. In cases like that, Michael, the verse that I go to is, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You know, Jacob, when he had to say goodbye to Benjamin, said, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. But I keep going back to Job's words. You know, if nothing that I'm praying happens, if my biggest desires are not fulfilled the way that I think they should, and if he slays me, yet I'm going to trust him. And it's been a little difficult to come to that point on some issues. But that's Christian resignation. I mean, that's like the serenity prayer. Help me to accept the things I cannot change. I don't think there is any peace for anyone who doesn't realize that we can trust God even when we cannot understand at all what is happening. If we can't so, trust give him... Me, give me the fulcrum. Give me the fulcrum. Where am I saying, okay, God, I'm going to trust you and, and not literally stop praying about this. Yeah. versus I'm going to be tenacious and pray till you know, clench my prayer teeth metaphorically till the day I die. 
it's a case-by-case basis, isn't it? Uh, there may be some times when it's perfectly obvious. The Lord makes you see that, that what you are wanting is not his will. And then you say, all right, Lord, I accept that. You know, this is the Apostle Paul prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, and then he recognized it wasn't God's will, and so he accepted it and stopped praying. But other times, like if it's for the salvation of a loved one or something that, you know, we realize may may take a long time to be accomplished. You know, George Mueller prayed 52 years for one particular friend uh, who was only converted after he died. So there are other things that I think are just long-term prayer objects, and we may pray more intense at certain times than we do at others. But I, I do think there are times when we keep on praying, and there are times when we just say, Lord, you have shown me your will in this, I accept it, and I believe you are faithful anyway. So th- that's the life of faith. And I appreciate it, but that's attention just transparently. I really wrestle with, and I hate that phrase, wrestle with, but you know, there's some people that I want to, I want to see them come to Christ, but I almost feel like, Lord, why do I spend the time? You know, it's almost, a, a, you know, apathy or abdication. And I know, ah, oh, you know, I can't do that, Michael. You don't know God's mind. And you're right. It is the track of faith. Do I trust him though? I can't see him. So anyway, let, let's, let's continue here with, let's maybe go to a question we can answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, g- give me some, well, let, let me talk about the title of the book. Everybody loves Fanny Crosby's hymn. Is it true? She wrote 8,000 hymns. Uh, yes, she did, but she did not write this one. The, uh, yes. The author- <laughs> I was just seeing if you knew. <laughs> the author of Great as Thy Faithfulness was a man named Thomas Chisholm. And he, he wrote this hymn after, of course, studying. I, should, I shouldn't really correct you. Actually, she did no, write it, Michael. Great. Yes, she, Fanny Crosby wrote that song. <laughs> well, it's, it's sort of like when you ask a children, you know, third grade class a question, they all say Jesus or God. So I, just, I just, you know... Uh, well, take, uh, honestly, it, it does sound like a Fanny Crosby hymn, but Thomas Chisholm wrote this after studying Leviticus 3. And so the title of the hymn comes from the King James version of that. So if people who are listening could just think of the worst day of their lives so far, most of us have lived long enough so that we can think back and, and say, one or two or three days. These are the worst days of my life. Jeremiah's worst day of his life was with the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 587 BC. All of his ministry, all of his work, all of his life, all of his labor, all of his home, all of his places, all of his friends suddenly collapsed and and ruin around him. And he wrote these funeral poems in the book of Leviticus. But right in the middle of them, he said, and yet this I call to mind, which is a very powerful spiritual technique. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, for his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And so Chisholm began studying that, thinking about how faithful God had been to him through the years. And out of that, he wrote that wonderful hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, which is, you know, one of the ones that I'll never get tired of. It often plays through my mind 
as I'm walking around the patio or waking up in the morning. I can remember many times, whether it was paying off a building or a baptism service or, you know, whatever. And it seems like that's sort of the longer doxology. <laughs> so we yeah. sing, we sing Chisholm's uh, hymn. <laughs> it's, it's one of the greatest, greatest of our American hymns. The last, you know, we all know the, the last verse typically, but pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. That line always struck me. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And that goes back to your earlier comment that, you know, there's things we want God to do. We're not, we're not trusting in hope itself. We're trusting in God and placing our hope there. Let's, let me go on here. So if you were to distill this down to maybe two or three observations, what's the concept that people need to have in mind when they think about, okay, God is faithful and this is an important way to think about my Christian life? Well, it's helpful to know a few of the verses, great verses about God's faithfulness, like Lamentations chapter 3, or like the verse in Hebrews, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Or Psalm 100, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever and his faithfulness continues to all generations. And I define faithfulness, I've made an acrostic out of it, full access into the Heavenly Father's unlimited love. We can count on his unlimited love and on his determination to keep his word. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words can never be broken. So I would encourage people, I think this book will help give them a sense of how to do it, Michael, but just to have a a habit every day of reading the Bible with a pen or a pencil, you know, or or you can use the highlighter on your phone if you want to do that. But we need to to say, Lord, what verse do you have for me today? This was the great secret of George Mueller that I mentioned a few minutes ago. He said, the the most important part of every day is preparing my heart to meet the day, getting my heart full. And the way to do that is just to read in the Bible until I come to that promise or that word that God has for me every day. And I took that seriously when I read it years ago. And so I just, right now I'm reading through Hebrews. And I was in chapter 9 today, you know, and, and it talked about our faithful high priest. And I just underlined some verses there and made some notes and thought about it, who intercedes for us eternally in the heaven. And I thought, Lord, I need that today. I'm glad he's up there. I'm glad he's doing that. Thank you, Lord. So if people will do this, then gradually they accumulate more and more Bible verses, more and more evidences of God's faithfulness. And faith grows by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're enabled to trust him more. And that gives us greater strength and joy and stability in life. I'm always struck by, you mentioned Lamentations 3 earlier. This is in perhaps the darkest time of Jeremiah's life. And we've got this little, almost like a footnote book that for the most part, it's it's a depressing book. But right there in the middle, and let, let me just read a couple of these. This is chapter 3, beginning in 23. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. 
The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good, and this is the one that always dismantles me. He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. And I read those verses, and I think, you know, he did not live, quote, unquote, people did not live to see that fulfilled. That this was a hope and a future that they were not going to see in their lifetime. I mean, Israel's entire history is checkered with their unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness, and yet they still held out hope. Well, yes, and just last Sunday I preached from Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel was reading the words of Jeremiah, probably the letter that Jeremiah had sent to the exiles in chapter 29 of the book, saying to them, uh, don't think you're going to be able to come back to Jerusalem in your lifetime or in the near future. He said, you settle down where you are, and enjoy life and build houses and plant vineyards and pray for the prosperity of the people. And when 70 years are over, then some of uh, your children and grandchildren will come back for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know, that famous verse that we love is connected with that promise that really was more related to future generations than it was the actual generation. Daniel read it, he claimed it, he never went back to Jerusalem, but it was his prayers claiming that promise that allowed the remnant to go back. So we look at things, Michael, we've got to train ourselves to look at the long view. It isn't a matter of what's going to happen in the next day or week or year. The people in biblical times thought Christ was coming again. The people in the book of Hebrews were discouraged because he hadn't showed up and so forth. And second. Peter chapter 3, he says, you're disappointed because Christ hasn't returned again. Well, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. So we have to look at that long view and say, it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but God is going to bring everything together in a way that will thrill us for eternity. And that's what we've got to keep our eyes on. Well, and, and this raises, I mean, it touches back on our earlier question for most of us, and I use the illustration of we're all horizontal in our Christianity. I mean, my, my family, my children, my infertility, my job, my problems, my divorce, and the vertical aspect of we're serving an eternal God, our Savior King. This earth is not our home. We're otherworldly creatures. And kind of a, a scenario I play in my mind when I get up is I ask the Lord the question. I ask myself the question, literally, Almost every morning when I put my feet out on the floor, I go, Lord, will I serve myself or serve my Savior? Yeah. Because it's so easy to begin serving myself, my cup of coffee, my chair, my, 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 you know, as opposed to, okay, Lord, how do I serve you? And again, back to that fulcrum, you're, you're saying in this book in 52 different ways, God's faithful, even if we're faithless. So how do we keep our chin lifted up a little more, Robert, so we're not just all about me? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul, when he was converted on the Damascus Road, asked two questions. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? And those are pretty good questions to ask. And when we know who the Lord is, then like you say, we can wake up every morning and say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And then we work on God's agenda. I mean, I don't know what he wants me to do five years from now, but I can generally figure out what he wants me to do today. He wants me to be faithful as I go about my work. He wants me to be kind to people. He wants me to maybe, and in the case today, actually, I'm going to make a lasagna and take to someone who's just had a baby. 
I felt like that they needed a little pickup. And so after we hang up, I'm going to go to the grocery store and do that. I make a little list. Lord, what do you want me to do today? And it keeps our, our minds on God's agenda for us. Um, and then when you overlay that with daily Bible reading, with prayer, with classic hymns, with good devotional material, you stay in the Word. When you're part of a good church, you've got the foundation there for being optimistic, even on rough days. Uh, some days, Michael, it's very hard. I had a day this week when I had to struggle all day to keep my spirits up. My heart was very heavy. But I'm not going to give in. I am going to struggle to keep my spirits up. Uh, my yeah. wife and I made up our minds, even in the worst days of her multiple sclerosis, that we were going to try to stay cheerful every day as much as we could. And Abraham Lincoln said, a man is about as happy as he makes up his mind to be. <laughs> so, so there is an element here of just saying, based upon the promises and the sure foundation of God's truth, I'm going to trust him and rejoice anyway. Sometimes we have to say, well, Lord, hallelujah anyway. Yeah. yeah. Let me, okay, final question. If you're willing, give me a, a real specific Robert J. Morgan story where you saw God's faithfulness in your life. Oh, well, gosh, there are so many. Uh, I would have to, to take a moment and think. It's hard for it not to be bound up with Katrina. There were so many times when, when during her illness, I would just be in some despair. Michael, I'm, I'm given to anxiety, I'm melancholic, I can get depressed, I can struggle with my emotions, I can feel hopeless, and I can also have panic attacks. And God gave me a wife who was the opposite of all of that. So for 43 years, when I would get like that, she would say, well, let me just pray for you. What's wrong with you? Let me pray for you. And she would admonish me and pray for me. And really, she kept me going. That, to me, to have a wife like that. And, and Michael, the fact that I married her was sort of a miracle. I was introverted. We had never dated because, or at least not much, because she was in South Carolina. I was in Illinois. We were dating one another. We decided to meet in my hometown of Elizabethton. We were in the front seat of the car. And I said to her, I don't think we're ever going to have the time to get to know one another unless we get married. And I didn't mean to say that. Um, or maybe I did, you know, subliminally. But she looked at me and she said, is that a proposal? And I said, well, I guess so. And, and, we, and we were just like that. We were proposed. I mean, we were engaged. And, and we got married. And then we, we fell in love because we hadn't had a chance to before. I mean, the likelihood of God giving me a wife like Katrina was, I mean, that is great faithfulness. And then when he took her home, the fact that I have not collapsed, but that he has sustained me and sort of moved into the house and, you know, given me a stage in life in which I'm having to depend on him without her. And, and that I haven't collapsed with that, you know, to me, having her and then not having her. 
are two sides of, of how faithful God has been to me. I appreciate that. I, when I taught through Second uh, Peter, or was it First Peter, my mind, some time ago, a couple years back, and one of the lessons that he impressed upon me was, where did we ever get the idea life was going to work out a certain way? And I, I think the disappointments in life, we, we all know we're going to die. We all know, you know, you're going to have cancer or Alzheimer's or some other horrible thing. I tend to be a little bit on the, not the morbid, but more of the realistic side of things. And yet it's still about him sustaining us in spite of us. And I think your words are a good reminder to that. Robert J. Morgan's newest book, Great Is I Faithfulness, Thomas Nelson Publication. It's available anywhere you purchase books online. So you need to, as soon as this podcast is done and you're finished, go and purchase a couple of copies. Maybe give it to a friend of yours who's discouraged or downtrodden. 52 examples of God's faithfulness in Scripture. Robert. Thanks for being a friend. Thanks for your diligence to keep writing and encouraging the larger body of Christ. And you never know how God's using you, but I have a, I have a sense he's using you in a huge way, my friend. Well, and you too. You too. Thank you for letting me share your platform today and be a part of what you're doing. I appreciate it and love you very much. Love you too, brother. We'll see you soon. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.